Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Trouble sleeping? It's something of a tradition, Guinan. Captain touring the ship before a battle. Hmm. Before a hopeless battle, if I remember the tradition correctly. Not necessarily. Nelson toured the HMS Victory before Trafalgar. Yes, but Nelson never returned from Trafalgar, did he? No, but the battle was won. That, Dominic, was uh, Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan. And Patrick Stewart as Captain Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek The Next Generation. If you had given me a thousand guesses, <laughs> I would not I would not have guessed that one of those people was Whoopi Goldberg. I'll yeah, be it honest was. with you. It was. So uh, that is uh, from the episode The Best of Both Worlds, which sees the um the Enterprise facing its deadliest enemy yet, the Borg. Um and uh Jean-Luc Picard is supposedly uh, French, but is he? He drinks <laughs> he drinks Earl Grey tea. Uh, he <laughs> loves Shakespeare, and uh, facing a hopeless battle, he, uh, he conjures up Nelson. So good for him. Um, I think he's a very English Frenchman. Um, anyway, so that is by way of introducing today's episode, which uh, I'm hoping Dominic will take us to the eve of the battle. So just like Jean-Luc Picard is waiting to take on the Borg, we will end up with Nelson waiting to take on the French and Spanish fleets off the Cape of Trafalgar. Brilliant analogy, Tom. Brilliant. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Fantastic podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you love a popular culture reference. I mean, I know you're I not do, a Star Trek fan because you think it's too earnest. but um, I do, but um, yeah, fine. I applaud your use of, um, <laughs> popular culture. Your use of Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Thank, thank exactly. you very so much. So last time we talked about the deep background of the Battle of Trafalgar, the geopolitical position. We talked about the institutional history of the Royal Navy, the way in which the Navy was the reflection of financial, political, economic um, forces that had been gathering strength in Britain, I suppose, since the 1650s or the 1690s or the 1740s, or you choose your date. 1580s. But now, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you were whispering about Alfred the Great, I'm sure, at some point. But listen, we've, we should now, Tom, enter you know, the the, the, the 19th century. Yes. You, you want to talk a little bit about the characters to you and particularly 
Nelson. Do you want to start with Nelson? Well, I thought I thought it would make sense to, to talk about who is fighting in the battle. So we've yeah. got obviously the admirals, the captains, the men on both sides. And Trafalgar is really synonymous with Nelson because it's it's his strategy, it's his tactics that results in the victory, and of course because he dies in the battle. Yes, we're we're on a patriotic streak up at the moment, aren't we? We've celebrated uh, British fashion in the Regency period. We did three episodes on Churchill, and now we're doing Trafalgar. Where do you think Nelson stands in the the pantheon of British heroes? Oh, um, he's he's obviously in the top rank, um, in the very top rank. I mean, he has his column. <laughs> if you've got a column, if you're a column, you're a top hero, aren't you? There has been a, 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 a I think, a, a reasonably sort of um, fruitless attempt to, to cancel him. I mean, the people don't try to cancel you until unless you are somebody. But a com- I mean, a completely failed campaign, not even a campaign, really, just to sort of to cancel him, which never got anywhere. Nelson, I think to most ordinary Britain, I mean, when they had the Great Britain's competition at the beginning of the 21st century, Nelson was in the top 10. I think to most ordinary Britons, Nelson is one of the four or five people who is synonymous with Britishness, with British heroism. So he's up there with the only people who rival him, Tom, I would say, in the public imagination, I'm talking about people who are not interested in history, are Churchill, I suppose, Elizabeth I, you know. Possibly um, Alfred. but Maybe Alfred. But I mean, Nelson is more famous than Alfred, I would say. Yes, I think so. Wouldn't you? Yes. I mean, I think he's become a slightly distant figure. He's up there on his column. Uh, people don't really <laughs> yeah. study the Napoleonic Wars in, in detail. I mean, we... Uh, at, at school, we were close in Salisbury. We were close enough to Portsmouth that once a year we'd go to HMS Victory. I, I read quite a lot about him when I was a child, and I, I, I found him a heroic figure. I mean, I think he is a heroic figure. Uh, he's he's very very. I mean, unbelievably physically brave, and he he has the slightly chilling quality of a hero. In the first episode, we talked about him as a kind of epic. He's a kind of weird Christian Achilles. Might be the best way to right. sum him up. I mean, see, he's the son of a, a, a very conservative Tory clergyman. Um, he's very, very ideologically opposed to the Jacobinism, the um, the anti-monarchism, the republicanism of his his French adversaries. He sees himself absolutely as engaged, I think, in a kind of apocalyptic battle against against the French republicanism. Yeah, he's a kind of weird mix of. Uh, Absolute attention to detail. So we talked about that in the first episode, how important that is to the success of the Navy. Um, so right the way through his career, um, he is, he keeps a weather log. He keeps a weather log on the last, you know, the day he dies, the 21st of October, 1805. And he's done that throughout his entire career. And it's that that enables him to have this absolutely kind of pinpoint ability to judge the waves, the winds, everything that that an admiral needs to to properly read um, the, the the surface on which he's going to fight, but at the same time he has this kind of strange visionary quality. So when he's seventeen, he he, he goes to um, Central America and he gets malaria, he's recovering from it, and he feels incredibly depressed about how little he's done, even though he's age seventeen at the time. But you know, anyone who's been seventeen is perhaps aware <laughs> of that kind of. And he said, I could discover no means of reaching the object of my ambition after a long and gloomy reverie in which I almost wish myself overboard. A sudden glow of patriotism was kindled within me and presented my king and country as my patron. My mind exulted in the idea. Well, then I exclaimed, I will be a hero and confiding in providence. I will brave every danger. Well, that combination of the, the patriotism and providence 
is absolutely key to his character, isn't it, Tom? Yes, I think he literally he has this kind of he feels possessed by a kind of prophetic, a visionary fire. And that is what people respond to. People love him. Yes. But his captains adore him. And he is, a, I mean, so they, all of that makes him sound a bit of a monster because somebody who has that prophetic fire and all that stuff, you know, they can be quite, as you said, a terrifying figure. But the interesting thing with him is he is, I mean, sometimes, you know, there's all the, I, you know, we could do a rest is history tips for, for American business leaders flying from Cincinnati to Houston and they don't have anything to read and the kind of book that would be available in the airport. Well, actually, the management techniques of Horatio Nelson yeah, completely. would be a reasonable because he's a brilliant manager of his of his staff, of his underlings, isn't he? Because he gets on fantastically well, well I think, with I his think captains. Basically, to work with Nelson was to adore him. That, that's what essentially everybody says. There are his, yeah. his peers who find him insufferable, who think he's he's bumptious. So uh, a bit like with Churchill, a bit like with the young Churchill, they think he's a medal hunter. They think he's fame hungry. They think he's annoying and whingy and difficult and all of those things. But the people who work for him worship him, don't they? Completely, because his charisma, his, his, his courage, uh, but also the way that he obviously loves his captains and loves his men. Yeah. Uh, so Adam Nicholson, who wrote a, a brilliant book, Men of Honor, um, about Trafalgar, says that the people Nelson loved, a part, of course, from Emma Hamilton, his mistress, were his captains. And I think that that sense of a band of brothers, you know, yes, the great speech of Henry V, which Nelson knew off by heart, that mm. sense that to be with Nelson was to be taking part in a great heroic epic is it, it, it absolutely animates both Nelson himself, but all his captains and the men who serve under the captains. Not least, Tom, because he he because he's aware of the media. You know, this is an age of a media age. Yes, he's a media the star. Early 19th yes. century. Uh, he he casts himself just as Churchill would later do. He casts himself as a kind of melodramatic hero, doesn't he? He plays up to the crowds. He plays up to the newspapers and the kind of I don't know the gossip columnists, as it were. Um, and he communicates to the people around him. You know, we're not just fighting, sailing off to fight the French in a sort of bog standard battle. We, you are characters in this, uh, what you know, what you called a Homeric epic, and people love to be told that. And his captains love that. The men love that, don't they? I, I mean, I think it works on two levels. So there is the sense that Nelson himself would never ask his men to do something that he wouldn't do. So there's the famous response <laughs> when, when, when he has his arm amputated after an abortive attack on Tenerife uh, and he's asked, you know, how are your spirits? And he replies, never better. And that's the yeah. kind of quality of song for our and, and, and courage that people respond to. But at the same time, he, he adores his men. He cares for them. Uh, his concern to source them food, to keep them fit, to ensure that they're healthy. Um, it's not just about so that they can go out and kill the French, although that is absolutely a part of it. But it's also because he he, he passionately cares about their health. And so uh, Captain Hardy, so Nelson is the admiral on the, on the victory. Hardy yes. is the captain, the flag captain. And of course, famously ends up kissing Nelson as he's dying. Um, he says of, of, of Nelson that it was not a foolish passion for fighting, for he was the most gentle of all human creatures and often lamented the cruel necessity of it. But it was a principle of duty, which all men owed their country in defense of her laws and liberty. Um, that sense that he he's simultaneously <laughs> unbelievably ferocious, but also very gentle. And that's something that, that you get with other captains as well. So um, probably uh, aside from Nelson, the most 
celebrated um, admiral in the Napoleonic Wars is Cuthbert Cullingwood, who is a big, big uh, hero for uh, Dan Jackson from Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle oh, yeah. man. One of our guests, um, yeah. Yes. So he's called Cuthbert. His brother is called Wilfred. So clearly drawing on the names of the great Northumbrian saints. Uh, <laughs> and and they were friends from young men. They served together in, in their early years in the Navy. And both Nelson and Collingwood adored animals. So Nelson was very, very keen on, on animals. Collingwood famously had a dog called Bounce, which he kept with him yeah. on his ship. Um, and, and when Nelson arrived at Trafalgar to consult with Collingwood, you know, Bounce was there on the ship with him. Um, you know, he loves animals. He's charismatic. He kills the French. Uh, he's got, you know, he behaves like a film star. He cares for people. This is a kind of package that people can really respond to. There's a, there's a wonderful <laughs> moment, Tom. I know you hate these, um, you have a horror of these, this franchise. But in the film Master and Commander... Oh, I love Master and Commander. Russell Crowe's character is asked. They're all sitting. He's with. He's got the midshipmen who are the, the young boys who are kind of training to be officers um, around him. And one of them says, did you ever meet Lord Nelson, sir? And he says at one point... I had that honour. I had that honour. Yeah. He makes a joke about Nelson asking him to pass the salt. But then... And they all laugh. And then he says, the thing that sticks in his mind is that somebody offered Nelson a coat because it was cold. And uh, Nelson said, I don't need a coat because my... My love of king and country keep me warm. And Russell Crowe's character, Captain Aubrey, says, from anybody else, you would say this was pretty poor stuff. But when it came from Nelson, you know, you knew he meant it. And there's just a silence in the cabin. It's a wonderful scene. And actually what that captures was exactly what people did feel about Nelson, that he would come out with these kind of what we might say, oh, hallmark sentiments about king and country. But he said it with such charisma and passion much as I suppose you would say Churchill did in 1940, that people would be wiping away, people like Tom Holland would be wiping away manly tears of, uh, <laughs> of, of patriotic passion. Tom, say something negative about Nelson so that people listening to this podcast won't lambast us for being, um, is, there, is there any counter-argument to all this? Or do you think he's beyond counter-arguments? Do you know, emotionally, I do feel that. I think because he was a kind of childhood hero and yeah. uh, one the, the emotions one feels as a child are are much harder to kind of purge often. I feel much more strongly about Nelson than I do about say Churchill. I don't really care about Churchill, what people say about <laughs> Churchill. Right. But I, I suppose one would say about Nelson is that um, he spends a lot of time in the Caribbean uh, as, as we will mm-hmm. come on to this. He, he does in the last year of his life, as we'll come to discuss, he, he was very hostile to abolitionism. Um, he, he wasn't an admirer of Wilberforce. Uh, at no point mm-hmm. does he express any anxiety about the source of Britain's wealth that it's extracting from the Caribbean. So I think that that is uh, something to be that, that in the 21st century would be marked down against him just as in the 19th century, in the Victorian period, his relationship with Emma Hamilton. Yeah. So he does have a pretty rackety love life. I think it's fair to say he does. Uh, So he marries actually the daughter of a planter um, and, and, she doesn't really measure up to Nelson's sense of what the wife of a hero should be like. Whereas Emma Hamilton, who's this you know, yeah. extraordinary woman, who is um, the wife of the British ambassador to Naples, um, who becomes embroiled with Nelson, both romantically and um, it, it, all kinds of wars and shenanigans and rebellions that are going on in, uh, in, in southern Italy at the time and ends up living with Nelson um, in Merton. And this is seen as by the Victorians as being a, a, a great black mark against him. I think less so by his contemporaries, actually. I think that was seen as, as you know, I mean, this was the age of the Prince Regent. Um, 
the man who'll become William the Fourth and Mrs. Jordan. So this is kind of much, much more par for the course. But you know, he has his insecurities. He he's he's a driven man, and he his, his the great object in his life is is essentially to kill and destroy as many of the enemy as possible. I mean, he's he is a, a yeah. as I say, he's there is a strong element of the Achilles within him. But he's extraordinarily aggressive, isn't he? So very famously, you mentioned in the last episode, Cape St. Vincent. Uh, that's the one where he had led his men in a boarding party, the first British captain to do this since the or English captain since the 16th century onto the San Nicola. He had led them brilliantly with the, uh, with the war cry, Westminster Abbey or glorious victory, yeah. i.e. death or, <laughs> death or, or victory. Yeah. But I mean, you can imagine if you've got a captain who is leading you shouting that waving his gun or his cutlass or whatever, you just think, Fantastic, don't you? I mean, you can see Absolutely. why the men yes. would respond to that. Yes, and uh, what's interesting about the fleet at Trafalgar is that actually, although Nelson's very keen on the idea of the Band of Brothers, he doesn't know huge amounts of the people who end up serving with him at, at Trafalgar. But in the very few, you know, the, the brief space of time that he is there, he forges them again into this kind of collective force that is able to brave incredible dangers. We'll come on to discuss. And, you know, we talked in the first episode how... Um, the Royal Navy is is perhaps the the preeminent British institution. So a th- a, I think a third of the the sailors at Trafalgar come from from Ireland. You have about fifteen hundred are born outside Britain and Ireland. Uh, you've got I've, I've got the figures here. You've got three hundred seventy three from the US, one hundred thirty six from Italy. Uh, amazingly, you've got fifty seven from France. I guess they're kind of royalists. Right. Um, famously, you have eighteen from Africa. So one of them is, yeah. is shown on the um, the frieze uh, at the base of Nelson's column. Yeah, we talked about that in our statues episode, didn't we? Yes, yeah. yeah. A, a man called George Ryan, who was 23 uh, at the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, and Nelson gets all of them behind him, I think. Uh, so I think that's, that's, the, that's the measure of, of Nelson. Now, his opponent at Trafalgar, a, a, a less impressive figure, I think it's fair to say, but a man who is, he has a hard gig. He's got a huge name, Tom. I mean, say that for him. Do you want to give us the name? Well, his name is Pierre-Charles Jean-Baptiste Sylvestre Villeneuve, but it would be even longer if he hadn't dropped the de. So it was de Villeneuve. So he's an aristocrat, Tom, isn't he? He is. Now, has he sold out or is he just patriotic and he's doing his best for France, despite the fact that there's a Republican regime or what's going on with Villeneuve? So the, um, the the French Navy before the revolution is a very aristocratic institution, the, uh, and that's the contrast with with the, the British system. And when the uh, French Revolution happens, basically the entire command structure gets <laughs> eliminated, and this is why the French Navy is in a terrible state throughout the, the early Revolutionary Wars. And it's obviously brilliant for the Royal Navy; and it's a massive contributory factor to uh, British success on the seas. Under Napoleon, there's a recognition that this hasn't been entirely helpful. And so uh, to, to an extent, there's a kind of amnesty offered to royalist officers. Um, I think Villeneuve is a, is a patriot. Uh, he recognizes yeah. that, um, you know, the king is gone. He wants to serve France. Uh, I mean, he really is unbelievably aristocratic. So he um, uh, he was a knight of Malta. He'd had an ancestor who'd fought at the Battle of Roncesvalles, uh, the Song of Roland, you know, Charlemagne and all that, uh, an ancestor who'd fought on the Crusades. Um, and he's probably, in 1805, the most effective admiral that Napoleon has, but that doesn't make him very effective. He's run up against Nelson at uh, the Battle of the Nile. 
and he escaped that. So he's 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 stared into the whites of uh, Nelson's eyes. So the Battle of the Nile, for people who don't know, that was when Napoleon had gone over to Egypt. Um, Nelson had kind of caught up with him and fought this tremendous battle, cornering the French, uh, and had basically broken Napoleon's attempt to take Egypt and as the sort of gateway to um, to India and so on. And is that right, Tom? Yes, and the, and the Battle of the Nile is a classic example of Nelsonian aggression. So he turns up with his fleet uh, late in the afternoon. Um, he doesn't pause. He just sails straight in round the back of the French fleet, even though the, the waters are very shallow and it's a very risky manoeuvre, and he blasts them out of the water. And this is Nelson's first great battle of annihilation. He, he destroys two ships. He captures nine. And that is, I mean, that is far more than anyone has done. Uh, in any engagement with the French in, in the uh, the Re- Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. And it kind of sets a precedent that at Trafalgar, he's consciously trying to to exceed that. He's consciously trying to practice um, a, a, a battle of annihilation against the French. And Villeneuve knows this. And essentially, he's been broken at the Nile and he's been broken by the displays of British naval supremacy. And so <laughs> he, he, he writes to um, a friend of his, uh, Denis Decray, who is uh, essentially the, the Minister for Naval Affairs, who had also been at the Battle of the Nile. And he writes to him in 1805, it is utterly impossible for us to defeat the enemy when both sides are equal. Indeed, they will beat us when they are a third weaker than we are. And that, that may sound right. like defeatism, or you may say that that's realism. But Villeneuve yeah. is, is, you know, he's not possessed of the, the, the swagger and the confidence, certainly that Nelson is bringing to the table. Nor, it has to be said, are the Spanish... Who are, the Spanish are much more, they're a much more old fashioned Navy. That's fair to say, isn't it? They're an ancien regime Navy, not modernized, not professionalized to anything like the same degree. Uh, well, um, not entirely. Um, so the Spanish, the Spanish fleet, obviously, you know, it has that great tradition of, of, um, of, of seafaring going back to the, the 16th century and control of the Atlantic is crucial to the Spanish empire, but it gets destroyed in the 18th century. And then in the decades that follow that, so building up to the time of Trafalgar, there's been a concentrated attempt by the Spanish government to reinvest in the fleet because they recognise that without that, Spain will no, has no pretensions whatsoever to being a great power. So in the 1720s, uh, there's a naval minister called the Comte de Maurepas, uh, and he says trade generates the wealth, consequently the power of states. Navies are absolutely necessary to sustain seaborne trade. But Tom, you know what um, you know what Nelson said of the Spanish? I do. The dons may make fine ships; they cannot, however, make men. But but there, he's not saying that uh, you know he's not kind of saying they're not they're not men that they're you know that they're they're cowards who run away. He's he, it, it's literally a comment about the the, the, the demographics. And yeah. one of the problems that Spain faces that France and Britain doesn't is that Spain has reimported diseases from the Caribbean and and the New World. So yellow fever is raging say, in Cadiz yeah. in southern Spain in 1805. And that has a, a terrible kind of knock-on effect on the ability of Spain to, to man its ships. So the French high command is defeatist. The Spanish high command is aware that it lacks the manpower in a battle and is very, very ambivalent about siding with France. I mean, essentially, it's kind of torn between French bullying and British bullying. Yeah. Spain had fought against Britain um, in the early stages of the war. 1801, the Treaty of Amiens, the war ends, doesn't re-enter the war when Britain and France resume the war. But then in 1804, they do re-enter the war. And the reason for that is that there is a Spanish treasure fleet and the British attack it. And 
on board the treasure fleet, there are also lots of, 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 of women and civilians and uh, they get a lot of them get killed in the engagement. And this is widely seen across Europe as a war crime. And it means that the Spanish essentially have no alternative but to re-enter the war. But they're, they're still very reluctant. There is still quite an Anglophile strain within the Spanish high command. And crucially for the campaign that starts to develop in 1805, the Spanish are not going to allow their ships to join the French and go into the Channel. So the Spanish have not told the French that, nice. but the Spanish high command have been told by the government, you are not to go with the French. So essentially, that, that's the state of play with the commanders and the men. And I think after yep. the break, we should come back and we should look at how this plays out in the build up to the actual battle of Trafalgar. So finally, Tom, an hour and a half into this <laughs> yeah. epic, yeah. we're approaching, well, we're approaching 1805. Anyway, I, I won't say we're approaching Trafalgar because I don't want to get people's hopes up. But if you come back after the break, we'll at least be in the right year. So we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the rest is history. So, Tom, I know you have been, you've spent the break. I've watched you. You've spent the break <laughs> interfering with your colossal pile of notes. I, I, I hope I'm not drawing back the veil too much. 
to say that, I mean, you've done colossal amounts of reading, as you've told the, the listeners. Yeah, I just want that on the record. So you're absolutely poised to give us a, a, a masterly strategic overview of the, the course of the war up to the Battle of Trafalgar. So, Tom, where are we and what is going on? Well, people who remember the, 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 the beginning of our first episode. Six hours ago. <laughs> we talked about Napoleon's plans to invade Britain. This is the context. He has built up an enormous force. Uh, on the North French coast, centred around Boulogne. He needs to get it across the channel. And to do that, he needs to beat off the British fleet. So he needs essentially to take control of the channel only for you know a very short space of time. His plan for doing this is to repeat on the, the, the scale of the Atlantic what he conventionally does in land battles, which is to create feints and to distract the enemy so that they're looking one way and then he strikes in. Yeah. He has various fleets that are kind of bottled up by British blockades. So there's a chain of, of French and Spanish ports that contain ships that, if they can be brought together, will create a concentrated fleet that potentially will have the chance to outnumber the British fleet in the Channel. So in total, Spanish and French, they've got about 100 ships, I think about 100 yeah. ships at the line. And, yeah. and, and so these ports are – you've got Boulogne, the British fleet um, – under a guy called Keith, Admiral Keith. So that's that's blockaded. You have Brest uh, in just kind of southern side of the tip of Brittany, uh, which is blockaded. You have uh, the port of Rochefort, lower down. Uh, you have Ferrol in northern Spain. You have Cadiz in southern Spain, just above Trafalgar, just above Gibraltar, which is occupied by Britain. And then you have Toulon, which is the great naval base in, in the south of France, which is blockaded by Nelson. Napoleon's plan is that the force in Toulon which is commanded by Villeneuve, will slip out, give Nelson the slip, sail yeah. out through the Straits of Gibraltar and head out to uh, the Caribbean. And the Caribbean is so economically important to Britain. It's you know the centre of, of, of sugar and tobacco yeah. and cotton and, of course, of slaves. I mean, slaves themselves are, are, are incredibly valuable property. And that will drag Nelson out, is the plan. But the Atlantic is so huge that Villeneuve will meet with forces that have come from Rochefort and from the Spanish ports, and they will then move up into the channel. And So they'll double back, basically. They'll double back. And Nelson will have no idea what's going on because the vastness of the Atlantic means it's very difficult to keep track of it. So that is the plan. It's an incredibly complicated plan. And I think it, it reflects the fact that Napoleon has never actually commanded at sea because he's assuming that um, all the things that can go wrong, all yes. the rendezvous that will be the missed. Storms, and, all, yes, yeah. exactly. So, so, so it's a very, very complicated plan, but, but this is what his, his aim is. Let's say the plan works. So Villeneuve and the Spanish, they double back, they get back, they relieve Brest. They, they join up with the rest of the fleets. They go to Boulogne, they get the troops. How many troops are there? 150,000, 100,000. Yeah, like yeah. And then they ferry them. They manage to, break Admiral Keith, get the men across the channel. And then their plan, we were talking about this in episode one, their plan is really it's destruction rather than occupation. Yes, Am it's, I right? to, it's, it's to destroy the underpinnings of British naval power. So to destroy yeah. the, the, the bases at, at Portsmouth and Plymouth and, and up the Thames estuary. And to some listeners, that will be like, well, who cares? It's just a raid on a few bases. But to give people a sense of the stakes, if that plan had worked, Britain would have been unable effectively to compete yeah. In the Napoleon, because we have no really sizable army. It would have destroyed the British Empire. 
uh, yeah. it would have massively inhibited the Industrial Revolution. Well, Britain would have lost all its colonies, conceivably. Yeah. Certainly its Caribbean, its prized Caribbean colonies. The French would have been able to blockade us, you know, starve us out or whatever. I mean, in the long run, the success of that Napoleonic enterprise probably would mean the diminution of Britain as a, as a world power with enormous consequences going into the 19th century. Yes. So the stakes are very, very high. That's what makes this kind of incredible chess game that starts to evolve yeah. in the early months of 1805 so significant. Um, so what happens is that Villeneuve gets his orders from from Napoleon in, in early January, off you go. So he sets off in, on the 18th of January. And he's taking his 11 battleships with him. He's got 6,000 troops. So like the Romans, it's this idea that, you know, you're, you're going to fight land battles at sea. You pack right. your ships with yeah. troops because that hopefully can kind of counterbalance British command of gunnery. Uh, Nelson realizes that Villeneuve has gone in panics, immediately thinks of India because that's what had happened before when Napoleon had slipped out from, from Toulon and ended up in, uh, in Egypt. So Nelson goes herring off to Alexandria. Meanwhile, Villeneuve has been beaten back into Toulon by a storm. So he's, he's holed up in Toulon. He sets off again in March. By the 9th of April, he has reached Gibraltar. Meanwhile, Nelson is herring back from Alexandria because he's discovered this, you know, the, the French have not got there. And on the 16th of April, he is told that Villeneuve has already passed through the Straits of Gibraltar. And he's escaped. I mean, he feels terrible. It was his job to stop this happening and he's failed. And he doesn't know where Villeneuve is going. Is Villeneuve going to, to Ireland? Always a possibility. The French could ferment a, you know, a new rebellion in Ireland and that would be disastrous for Britain once again. Or he, if he goes to the Channel, that's bad. If he goes to the Caribbean, that's probably the worst case scenario in some sense, isn't it? Because the colonies are so important economically. Yes. Yes. And so, and, and Nelson has to kind of take a punt. Where am I going to go? And, and uh, you know, where might he have gone? And he's so uh, anxious by it that he's kind of prostrated. He, he becomes ill with, with anxiety. By early May, it's become clear to him from various reports that have come back to him that, that Villeneuve is indeed heading for the Caribbean. British ships are much faster because they're much more effective at kind of clearing the, um, all the rubbish off the off the, the base of the ships. The um, barnacles. So he, the barnacles. And so he goes um, speeding off to the West Indies uh, and he arrives there shortly after Villeneuve has arrived. But Villeneuve has, first of all, failed to complete the rendezvous with the other ships. I warned I warned him if he'd only, I warned him a few sentences ago. Absolutely. Uh, and also when he knows that Nelson is on his, on, on his heels, he, he gets thrown into a panic and, and, and flees. And it doesn't really commit, you know, he doesn't succeed in capturing Kingston or uh, Antigua or whatever. Right. And so he he heads back across the Atlantic. Nelson has failed to, to corner Villeneuve. So he's disappointed about that. But he's, he, he you know, he's, he's starting to get his confidence back. So he writes, he writes and says, I, I have saved these colonies and more than 200 sail of sugar loaded ships. So he right. recognizes, uh, you know, he is fighting for the uh the sugar barons as as well as for britain i mean britain can't fight the war without the money from this stuff so he's in the caribbean villeneuve is heading back across the atlantic by this point everybody else is back in port um and the the, the, the british blockades have resumed outside brest outside rochefort outside farol and outside yeah. cadiz the only pieces that are really kind of moving on the the, the great atlantic chessboard are nelson and villeneuve um, what are they going to do? Villeneuve heads back to uh, to Farol. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the his his the plan is that he will go to Ferrol. He will pick up the Spanish ships there. Uh, he will then join the, the French squadron from Rochefort, and he will head north to the Channel. Those are the orders that he has from um, Napoleon. All kinds of things uh, prevent him from doing that. The first is that although uh, Villeneuve doesn't know it, the Spanish have been told not to go to the Channel. So that's there's no way the Spanish are going to accompany him. Yeah, He's then sailing northwards. He runs into a British fleet under a guy called Sir Robert Calder. Uh, yeah. there, there is a battle. Calder fails to destroy Villeneuve's fleet, so it's an indecisive battle. And in due course, Calder will be pilloried for this, rather like Admiral Bing. He will it will be yeah. seen that he's been insufficiently aggressive. But Villeneuve is uh, unsettled by this. He starts to think without the Sp- I can't take the Spanish with me because by now he's kind of realised the Spanish aren't going to come with him. He thinks yeah. that there are huge squadrons of British ships kind of between him and the channel and that they will have the beating of him and he thinks the best thing to do therefore is not to risk the french navy but to try and get back to a safe port and so he heads south down the coast of spain and he heads towards cadiz cadiz is blocked by cuthbert collingwood this very very yeah nelson's old mate owner of bounce the dog very, very <laughs> tough character uh, in body and mind. He was iron and very cold iron, but he doesn't have many ships. He, d- he only has about three ships. And so the risk for Collingwood is that as Villeneuve is coming down the coast, he might get trapped between those ships that are already in, um, in French ships that are already in Cadiz and Spanish ships that are in Cadiz and Villeneuve's force. So he retreats. Um, he summons back more ships and he kind of hovers around on the horizon not wanting the French to know how few ships he has. But the blockade continues, and Villeneuve ends up in Cadiz. And Villeneuve has 33 ships or so? He has, yes, 33 ships. And Napoleon feels that this is enough. If he picks up more ships from from Rochefort and Brest, why shouldn't he come up the channel? Yeah, it's more than enough. I think Napoleon is being over-optimistic, personally. Well, Napoleon is furious, and he sees, you know, he condemns Villeneuve as a coward. And essentially it persuades napoleon to, to give up on on the entire plan and by this point pitt has been maneuvering he's got um, austria and russia back into the war and so napoleon decides well i'm not going to hang around or you know gazing across the straits at the cliffs of dover there's no point i'm going to go off and fight the battle of austerlitz so that's what he yeah. he does he goes herring off um to, to fight war in, in in central europe and the threat of invasion is past meanwhile Nelson has has crossed back across the Atlantic. He's landed at Gibraltar. He steps on land for the first time in two years. He's been at ship wow, for two imagine. years. Yeah, that I mean, it's extraordinary to think of what that must be like. Imagine the wobbling as you walk <sighs> know, on that kind of the swaying. So yeah. he he decides he's going to go back to London, uh, get his orders, and and discuss what what should be done. And so he he heads back to London. In London, waiting for him is Lady Hamilton in their, their house. So everybody knows, everybody knows that they are lovers and they've got this incredibly scandalous relationship, haven't they? Yes. Uh, and he, they have a house in Merton in South, in what is now uh, Southwest London, but at the time was a, a village. It's on the main road between London and Portsmouth. So very convenient for Nelson to, to go to Portsmouth if summoned, but also to go into London to talk to the Admiralty or to yeah. 
you know, Downing Street or, or whatever. Emma Hamilton has been busy making it uh, a, a place fit for Nelson. So she has, uh, she's, it's by the Wandle, which is uh, one of the rivers. Um, Nelson uh, fishes on the Wandle when, he, when he's at home. He's got a moat, hasn't he? Yes, that they call the Nile. The whole right. the whole house is an absolute shrine to Nelson and Emma. I wish I had a house like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, and very sadly it was demolished in um 1823, but uh, pe- people who visit it, you can there's an entrance to the Grand Drive that's marked by a pub called the Nelson Arms. Oh, that's nice. That's Even good. though of course Nelson only had one arm. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the pub, I, I'd give the pub so much credit if they'd rename it the Nelson Arm. <laughs> yeah, it would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> anyway, so so Nelson's there, but he's going in, in and out of London. He's absolute hero of the hour. And so someone says, wherever Nelson goes, the air rings with hussars. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love that, Dominic? I mean, I never go out, so... <laughs> A friend of his describes it, it's really quite affecting to see the wonder and admiration and love and respect of the whole world and the general expression of all these sentiments at once from the gentle and simple the moment he is seen. It is beyond anything represented in a play or a poem of fame. Tom, that's what happens when you walk into the room at a rest is history club get together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I, la- I, you know, I lack this Homeric quality. And it's, again, it's that idea so? that what about Nelson... The it's this idea that Nelson is is already the hero of a poem or a play yeah and he's consciously playing that role he is the you know he is england's lion that's that's the whole point well even the people at the top think that tom because i mean the the crowds think it and they love to see him and they cheer him but when he goes to london um pitt the younger william pitt you know he he pays off homage to nelson doesn't he he walks with him to his carriage yeah when he goes which when he wouldn't for the last time when he's leaving so so w- yeah. and that reflects the fact that nelson has been in discussion with pitt with the admiralty and walking yeah. around his garden in merton uh doing his fishing and uh, admiring all the busts of him that emma has put up everywhere he is plotting what his strategy should be because what he wants to do is is to do what he did at the Nile, which is to pursue a battle of annihilation. But he wants to pursue it even more aggressively than he'd done at the Nile. Because Nelson recognises, as the Admiralty do, as Pitt recognises, that if the British can destroy the French and Spanish navies, then Britain can will not only, you know, it'll be impossible for the French to invade, but Britain can also seize French and Spanish trade, take it over, and by doing that, impoverish them, and then prevent yeah. them from ever kind of developing fleets on the scale that the the British have. Well, you can blockade them in Europe. You can starve them of imports. You can destroy their trade. It will take time, but you know that you will win that war. I mean, it will take years, but you can do it. His plan is to annihilate the enemy. And he's able to do that because even taking the, the, the number of ships that he does, that's only a fraction of the total British force. So he can afford to take a risk and he can afford to lose British lives. Actually, the number of British casualties are not going to be important if you're pursuing a battle of annihilation. What matters is that the battle causes as much destruction as possible to the enemy. And his plan for doing that, Tom, just to give people a a sort of sneak preview, he wants to get right up close. He wants to take his ships and pierce you know because we haven't talked about naval battles and there's a sort of slightly ritualistic element isn't there to 18th century naval battles the two sides kind of line up and shoot at each other effectively yeah and what nelson wants to do is he wants to head straight for the enemy pierce their line in two places and get really close what he calls it will bring he says it will 
they will not know what I'm about. It will bring forward a pell-mell battle. And that is what I want. I mean, what he wants is the carnage, the the chaos, the close quarters fighting to be sort of turned up to the absolute maximum because he is confident that the superior British discipline, the gunnery and all that kind of thing, that that will, it will when they're up close, there's no way, he thinks there's no way really he can lose. I mean, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah, so... so- I think it's the the plan is operating on two levels. The first is, as we discussed in the first episode, that British gunnery is so superior and is so effective at close quarters that if they can get right up close, so basically, you know, the British guns are aimed straight at the French or Spanish guns, the impact of that will be absolutely devastating on the enemy ships. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I think, to create chaos. The 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 battle naval battles fought in the you know from the seventeenth through the eighteenth centuries are designed to impose a kind of patterning. On, on the chaos of naval battles. It's like a, like a, the kind of dances that you get in Jane Austen films. Yeah. You know, yeah. People line up and, and fire, and then they kind of withdraw. It's kind of minuet. Yeah. Nelson wants to rip that up, and he wants to create chaos. He wants to operate at the edge of what is possible for the British fleet to operate in the full confidence that that will destroy the Spanish and French, because they will lack well, when the he's, professionalism when to he's, cope with that. When, he, when he's drawing up his plan, he has a friend... Captain Richard Keats, one of his captains, to come and stroll in the garden with him at Merton. And Nelson tells him the plan, says, well, what do you think of it? And Keats is astounded by the audacity of the plan. He thinks, you know, it's so swashbuckling, so ambitious, and he doesn't know what to say. And Nelson answers his own question and says, I'll tell you what I think of it. I think it will surprise and confound the enemy. I, they will not know what I'm about. And that's that's exactly your point. It's the the surprise, the chaos, the breaking with convention, all of that kind of stuff. In a way, it's a strategy bred of his contempt for the French and Spanish. Right. He, he, he is assuming that he can break them utterly. Yeah. And, and a Sandbrookian strategy. A Sandbrookian yeah. strategy. Yeah. So that is the plan. And so he, he, he talks it over with the high command in London. Uh, and as you say, um, he, uh, he has his last meeting with Pitt, who walks him to the carriage as a mark of his respect. He goes to the colonial office where he meets for the one and only time Sir Arthur Wellesley. The future Duke, Duke of Wellington. Wellington. Wow, what a, I mean, but but it's not a great. I mean, it's better than the meeting of Proust and Joyce, or whatever. <laughs> it is, it <laughs> is. Well, because well, Wellesley, the future Wellington, is suspicious of Nelson, and, and, and when they first talk, thinks he's a bit full of himself. But by the end, is is one round and says that I don't feel that I ever had a conversation that interested me more. Uh, and Nelson is also summoned to see the Prince Regent. <laughs> Oh, probably less of a yeah. meeting of minds. Yeah. So he so that's on the 12th of September. 13th of September, Nelson spends the day at Merton uh, with, with Emma. Uh, 10.30 in the evening, he takes a, a chaise for Portsmouth. So he rattles down from Merton down the Portsmouth Road, arrives there. Uh, the next morning, he rows out to victory. Um, and two men, so George Canning, very, you know, yep. very eminent uh, politician of the, the age, yep. given his name to many pubs, is is one of them, uh, accompanies him to his flagship. And then on the 15th of September, Victory leaves Portsmouth, sails off uh, and sails down and arrives with his with his fleet at uh, off, off Cadiz. He is joining Collingwood's force, which by this point has, had swollen to, to eight ships. Um, and he joins Calder's force. So Calder is the guy who had fought the um, indecisive battle against Villeneuve that had had alarmed and frightened Villeneuve, and Calder has been summoned back to answer a court martial, and Nelson is is very 
chivalrous about this. He he tells Calder, don't go. I, you know, I think you should stay here and fight. Uh, and when Calder feels honour bound to go, he allows Calder to go in his flagship. So Nelson's force is depleted by one ship as a result of that. And something else that Nelson does is to send away a further number of ships. I think it's four or five um, to go to Gibraltar ostensibly to, to 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 strengthen the garrison in Gibraltar. But almost certainly the aim of that is that um, Villeneuve's spies should be able to see that Nelson is depleting his forces. And do you know the, uh, well, you do, because you've got my notes. The, well, <laughs> I'll pretend one, I don't. One, one of the officers on those five ships that get sent off to Gibraltar, so ends up not fighting at the Battle of Trafalgar. Is it the, the father of Charles Dickens, Tom? No, it's... It's the brother of Jane Austen, Francis Austen. Wow, what a revelation. So, who knew Who knew that? He'd been part of Collingwood's squadron off Cadiz and um, very, very upset to be yeah. sent off by Nelson. So he ends up not taking There's part There's a lovely the moment, conflict. isn't there? Um, Nelson writes to Emma, and I think the 1st of October, and he says he's had this meeting where he's got all the captains in his cabin and um, he tells them the plan. The aggressive, this incredibly aggressive plan. He says, when I came to explain to them the Nelson touch, it was like an electric shock. Some shed tears, all approved. It was new. It was singular. It was simple. And from the admirals downwards, it was repeated. It must succeed if ever they will allow us to get at them. You are, my lord, surrounded by friends whom you inspire with confidence. Yeah. And Nelson tells them it is annihilation that the country wants. Splendid stuff. The stage is almost set, Tom. Yeah, he's very, very excited about this this plan. But obviously, it requires the French and Spanish to leave Cadiz. You know, the French and Spanish have been very, very reluctant to face the Royal Navy. Um, so the question is, why does Villeneuve leave? Well, he, first of all, he's given direct orders by Napoleon to take troops from Cadiz to southern Italy and Sicily. So that those are direct orders. Furthermore, his his pal, Denis de Cray, the Minister for the Navy back in Paris, sends him a coded warning that Napoleon is going to sack him and summon him back to uh, t- to Paris and basically says, you know, you should you should get out there and you should fight the British and defeat them if you uh, you, know, you don't want to get into serious trouble. And also uh, Cadiz is, doesn't have many supplies and it's, you know, there is a, a yellow fever raging and it's really not a good, good place for a large fleet to be stationed. So all those reasons, I think, prompt... Villeneuve to feel that he has nothing to lose, really, that that he has to do it. Villeneuve has the, he has the advantage of numbers of ships. He has 33 ships and the British have 27. He also has far more men. He has 30,000 men and boys. The British have 17,000 men and boys. So he perhaps thinks, not only do I have nothing to lose, but there's a really good chance I could win this or at least escape relatively unscathed. I, I think escaping relatively unscathed is the best that he's hoping for. Um, he also, right. of course, has to persuade the Spanish. Yeah. Uh, and the Spanish are led by a, a guy called uh, Frederico Gravina, who is, um, in fact, from Sicily. Uh, so a bit like Napoleon, he speaks Italian as his first language. Um, yeah. He's of a, a very distinguished line of, of Spanish aristocrats. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, why Nelson sends ships away from his own fleet, so to diminish it, is that it makes it impossible for Gravina and the Spanish to stay in harbour. Um, they can't stay there without dishonouring themselves. The British fleet is palpably s- smaller than the, the, the combined fleet of the French and Spanish. They essentially are on a bound to go out as well. So all of which results in, on the 18th of October, the, the French and Spanish go to mass in Cadiz. They start embarking. 
19th of October, they, they sail out uh, into the, the Bay of Cadiz. Yeah. They're out in the Bay of Cadiz. The wind drops. They're absolutely stationary. <laughs> They're kind of stuck there. Nightmare. 20th of October, very light breeze starts to pick up again. Combined fleet gets underway, heading southwards uh, down towards um, Cape Trafalgar, towards the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, and then it starts to, to rain. The winds pick up incredible gloom, very low visibility. And the British ships, much further out in the, out in the Atlantic, lots of, lots of the captains are worried that the, the, the French and Spanish have retreated back into Cadiz and that they've lost their opportunity to, to, have a, to win the battle. But by nighttime, it's evident that actually the French and Spanish are still out at sea. And that means that on the evening of the 20th, of October 1805, everyone knows on the British fleet, yeah. as on the French and Spanish fleet, that in the morning there will be a battle. And that very day, Tom, Nelson has sat and has been sitting in his cabin and he's written two letters, hasn't he? One to his daughter, um, Horatia, his daughter, Lady Hamilton. I rejoice that you're so very good a girl and, I, and you love my dear Lady Hamilton, who most dearly loves you. I will be sure of your prayers for my safety, blah, blah, blah. Be a good girl. And he's also written a letter to Lady to Emma Hamilton. Um, May the God of battles crown my endeavours with success, etc., etc. But he doesn't finish the letter because he wants to finish it after, after the battle. Yeah. So, Tom, the stage now is well and truly set, isn't it? And as it happens, this is going out on um, the day before Trafalgar, isn't it? So tomorrow, the 21st of October, is Trafalgar Day. And the good news for our listeners is that we are very much a podcast in, in true late 18th, early 19th century spirit. We are both patriotic and commercial, aren't we, Tom? So the good news <laughs> <We> is <are. laughs> that if you too are patriotic and commercial, you can listen to our account of the Battle of Trafalgar on Trafalgar Day if you're a member of the Rest is History Club, which is to podcasting what the Royal Navy was to 18th century warfare. It's, it's disciplined, it's streamlined, and it has an awful lot of limes. <laughs> yes. So so you can join the, if you're a member of the Rest is History Club, tomorrow on Trafalgar Day, you can dance a jig, you can sing Heart of Oak, you can Spice do all that main stuff. Brace, all that exactly, all you yeah. can interfere with Marlin Spikes and yeah. jibs and stuff, and you can listen to our account of the Battle of Trafalgar. If you're not a member of the Rest is History Club, just head to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on Monday next week to hear our account of the Battle of Trafalgar, the final instalment in this three-part saga. And on that bombshell, Tom, we will see them next time for the Battle of Trafalgar. Goodbye. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.